Welcome to Conservative One, the podcast defending traditions and freedoms with George Christensen. Never give in. Never give in. Never, never, never. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. Socialists don't like ordinary people choosing, for they might not choose socialism. We cannot afford to be so politically correct anymore. Conservative One. Well, good day and welcome to another edition of Conservative One, the podcast defending traditions and freedom. I'm George Christensen, your host and Australian Member of Parliament, and I'm joined once again by Bill Muhlenberg. He was talking to us last week about cultural Marxism. Bill uh, is a Christian apologist, also an ethicist based in Melbourne. He runs an online blog called Culture Watch, which features really insightful Christian and conservative commentary on social and political issues of the day. Good to have you again, Bill. We were talking last week about the long march through the institutions and about the ultimate goals of cultural Marxism. One of the key goals was the destruction of the family. You identified radical Marxist feminism as one of the instruments in which the war against the family, as you call it, has been uh, has been waged. Tell us about that. Tell us how Marxism sort of intertwined with this radical feminism to lead to what's happened today. Yeah, well, it certainly is intertwined. I mean, we're not saying every person who's a feminist is a Marxist, and I suppose not necessarily every Marxist is a feminist, but there has been a long historical connection between the two. In fact, as I, uh, I've written about this often, I noticed just the other day as I was uh, doing a bit of a, a check on some of this, uh, a little bit later, I think in October, there's going to be a what is a regular international conference called Marx Femme. So again, it's not something we're making up. We're not being uh, paranoid or conspiracy theories. There's actually entire movements, uh, ideologies, conferences, which brings together Marxist feminist thought. In their minds, it is one in the same. In their minds, it is part and parcel of the same revolutionary movement to help overthrow the West. So in my articles, I've simply often offered a bunch of quotations from various radical feminists who often are Marxists as well. Just let them speak for themselves. And uh, it's quite revealing, you know, what they have said. They've made the question quite clear. For example, we could you know, just pick them out of the hat. Someone like Simone de Beauvoir, the French feminist and Marxist way back in the 40s already, she was talking about how Marxism was an integral part of her view and how that colored so much of her own writings. She was the one who so very famously or infamously said that the family is, quote, an obscene bourgeois institution, unquote. She talked about the need to promote homosexuality and to uh, denigrate heterosexual heterosexuality, um, you know, just pushing one radical sexual idea after another. And this is going back well before the, the 60s, which uh, we really began to see the full flowering of the feminist movement. 
she called she called child rearing slavery. That was yeah. that. That's a, a quote yeah. that jumped out at me from this uh, this woman. That's unbelievable. And said, no woman should be authorized to stay at home and raise her children. So much for uh, choice. She said, yeah. women should not yeah. have the choice. She said, precisely because if there is such a choice, too many women will take that one. So um, to me, that, that doesn't seem to be feminism, but that was uh, uh, an early example of radical feminism where, you know, apparently women can't make up their own minds. They've got to be told that they shouldn't stay at home and look after children. Anyway, that, that sort of smacks me of being yeah. very controlling rather than, uh, than feminist. But let's go on. What other, what other examples do you have of, of feminists that, that build the cat of the intertwinement between feminism and Marxism? Oh, look, again, all of the, almost all the major names that you can think of. Um, in fact, I've just noticed on TV there's evidently a new American TV series I know some of you saw having to do with the conservative American uh, activist Phyllis Schlafly. Oh, yeah. it's, it's, uh, I think it's by the look of it, it's some kind of multi-part TV series. But as you can imagine, if something Hollywood is doing, it's not going to put a good spin on her, who was a conservative, a Catholic, and of course stood against the Equal Rights Amendment and got all kinds of flack for doing that. Mm. But some of the very people that are featured in that television series uh, are the names that we still know of today, whether people like Betty Friedan, another famous American feminist, uh, way back in her mid-30s already, she was a Stalinist, very much a kind of a fifth columnist in America's Cold War. Uh, she, she, she said she obviously uh, liked mass starvation, torture, uh, people yeah. being interned into the gulags, uh, including yeah. women. Uh, and, uh, and, well, she was uh, absolutely. I mean, she is the one who, again, famously said that homemaking women, of which Phyllis Schlafly and others were trying to defend, she called those prisoners in comfortable concentration camps. So her idea of what uh, the good life is and what the good life isn't, uh, you know. So you had major people like this, you know, her book, she, she obviously Feminine Mystique, sold. She obviously hadn't read any Solzhenitsyn. Uh, she uh, thinks that was a concentration camp. Well, anyway. uh, that's right. Well, absolutely, absolutely. And there are so many of these. There is, a, you know, we could just go through the list. Uh, uh, one kind of famous Canadian-American, uh, Shulamith Firestone. Uh, interesting. She wrote The Dialectic of Sex, The Case for Feminist Revolution. That was, again, back in my day. That came out in 1970 mm -hmm. when I was still uh, part of this scene. So, again, the same idea. They all had the same line. She's the heart of woman's oppression is her childbearing and childrearing roles. So, again, there you go. Want to know how people are under the jackboot of oppression? It's uh, simply Biology. having children and uh, yeah, doing what they're kind of meant to do, what they're good at. So, yeah, we got all kinds of things here. We have uh, what became known as feminist legal theory, right? Just about every kind of radical idea is now embedded in our legal theory. We got Marxist legal theory. We got queer legal theory. We got feminist legal theory. And again, it's just bringing in pretty much holus bolus, basic Marxist ideas and terminology. So, um 
well, I mean, we can make this as practical as you want. I was surprisingly some years ago invited actually to speak at one of the law school classes at Melbourne University. I'm not sure how that happened. I don't think it would be allowed again, <laughs> but I did come in and speak. But I noticed just looking at all the staff, the academic staff, the lecturers, just about every single one was either a well-known feminist or a lesbian. None of the, um, you know, you wouldn't call any of them a traditional, uh, you know, pro-family type champion. They were all radicals on the hard left in full control, in this case, of the Melbourne University Law Department. But you could pretty much say that of not only all the humanities departments, but pretty much all the universities, not just in Australia and America, England, Europe. They've done a really good job of taking over, and now we wonder why we get whole generations of kids coming out absolutely radicalized, absolutely rejecting what their parents may have tried to teach them. And, uh, you know, you wonder why this is happening. Well, hey, it's, it's going according to plan is why it's happening. All the things we talked about in our last uh, week's broadcast about capturing the culture, capturing the schools, capturing politics. They knew if they could do that, they would have a pretty easy job on their hands. And guess what? We're now seeing the fruit, uh, admittedly the bitter fruit of all of this happening. There's been, interestingly, a fair bit of literature on this topic of late. In recent years, um, you know, I know that there's some books that you in particular recommend for people to get a greater understanding of what you're talking about. Can you just take us through some of the, the, the books that uh, you would think are essential reading to understand this war on the family and why you think they're essential reading? What, what, are, the, what are the messages from those books, Bill? Oh, look, there'd be many. And uh, again, I'm a big fan, obviously, of books. I've got over... Uh, over 500 book reviews just on my website. Wow. So that's a good way to get people, you know, aware of books. Maybe they don't have time to read the whole book themselves, but if you can get a good, a comprehensive, say, 1,500 book, 1,500 word book review, that, well, that goes a good long way. So some of the books, uh, plenty come to mind. Probably should start with one that I did review and one that, uh, well, if you haven't already had him on as a guest, of course, you need to do so. I uh, refer to the uh, Perth law professor, Augusto Zimmerman. He's uh, written a number of books. Uh, one of them is called Western Legal Theory. And in there, he looks carefully at, uh, again, what we just talked about, the uh, Marxist legal theory, queer legal theory, and so on. So he's a, well, he's originally from South America, but you can say now he's a homegrown. He's one of us. He's an Aussie law professor. And he has been uh, really at the cutting edge of being aware of the dangers of radical feminism, what it's done to our culture, how men especially have so often suffered. I mean, simply looking at the family law courts, what happens with divorce, how something like 85% of all custody battles, the children end up going with the mother and not the father, even though often the dad sure do want to have access to their own children. So people like Augusto Zimmerman and his books and his uh, writings and law journals and so on have really made it clear just how absolutely entrenched 
this Marx femme uh, ideology now fully is in all Australian universities and Western schools as well. So you probably wouldn't be amiss starting with him. And again, I would recommend you get him on for an interview. He's a wealth of knowledge. I know, uh, I know. Very concerned like you and I are. Yep. And, uh, yeah, he's. Uh, we need more like him well, as well. I, I know Augusto, so I will, uh, I will ask him for a future edition to uh, talk us through some of that. So what other resources would you recommend yeah. then to people on this issue? Yep. Oh, look, there's so many. Uh, again, I've got to narrow things down. Uh, again, so I think all of these books by the next uh, author I've done reviews of, so if nothing else, if your readers are keen and want to learn more, simply go to Culture Watch. There's a search uh, field top right. So the next author, uh, Stephen Baskerville, mm -hmm. uh, he's written a number of very good books back in 2007. For example, he wrote a book called Taken Into Custody, which again looks at this issue of the family law courts, the war against fathers, the war against marriage. That's a very, very well-documented book. Certainly looking, you know, especially at the American scene, but still fully relevant to uh, what's happening in Australia. And then about a decade later, he came out with another book, which I also did a lengthy review of called The New Politics of Sex, subtitled The Sexual Revolution, Civil Liberties and the Growth of Governmental Power. Uh, very interesting what he talks about in there. The government tends to expand its powers by, well, different things, creating a nanny state, obviously, but... Uh, well, we're not picking on all social workers and those involved. Many are doing a good job. But, of course, people in those kind of areas of social work really do need a steady stream of, well, conflict and problems in which to be, you know, there to help deal with. So, uh, you know, if we never had any more broken marriages, that would put some people out of work or lessen their course load. So uh, as Baskerville makes it quite clear, a lot of government policies, whether intended or not, A, not only tend to work to weaken marriage and family, but B, really tend to uh, increase the power of government bureaucrats and workers who end up dealing with picking up pieces of all this. So whether it's university academics or social workers or marriage celebrants or those uh, in the family law courts, you know, just simply keeping legal lawyers well paid uh, because of all this uh, acrimony, the fights between men and women, bitterness and divorce. Mm. You know, I'm not saying, uh, you know, divorce never happened before or it isn't a, a real problem when couples cannot get along. But as Augusto and you and I would know, ever since our own Family Law Act going back 50 years, well, the, the divorce revolution just took off, getting rid of all concepts of uh, fault, you know, as if maybe somebody may be at blame, getting rid of all that as well, whatever, adultery, you name it. You know, we used to have a whole number of areas where we could look at uh, whether a divorce might be uh, justifiable and worth pursuing, but today we have you know, no-fault divorce, pretty much the norm everywhere in the West. So 
the marriage contract is right now the most easily broken contract there is. You can write, you can get fired from McDonald's and you know, you'll have a harder time seeing that happen than you can simply walk out on your marriage partner. And so the family law court, the family law system has so much to answer for. It's it's really fueling uh, the breakdown in marriage and family. It's creating a self-perpetuating industry of workers, bureaucrats, others who, well, hate to say it, they kind of benefit from all this. So uh, again, if you want to look at the theory of Marxism, the theory of feminism, and how it has some very real practical outworkings, well, that kind of stuff that we just mentioned for the last five minutes, there you have it. And there'd be many in the Marxist and feminist camps who would be, well, almost rubbing their hands with glee. This is great. This is all working toward the end that we've always had in mind. The undermining of Western culture, the devaluing of things like marriage, family, it's its you know, it's working like a dream. So again, not every marriage being broken up is part of some grand Marxist plan, but a lot of what we see hasn't come by accident. Yeah, the path has been laid down for um, for what you've just outlined. Islamophobia hasn't killed anyone. Uh, Islamist terrorism has now killed tens of thousands of people. Conservative wine. Now, I know that there's a, a couple of other books that you uh, wanted to recommend. So can you keep talking us through those books? Yeah. Uh, look, again, uh, well, I've got, uh, in addition to book reviews, I, I love to put together bibliographies. So I often have on my website, Culture Watch, lengthy bibliographies, maybe with 70 or 100 titles. So if you want to have you know, books on marriage and family policy. I've got long lists of pretty highly recommended books, obviously from uh, our point of view. And so you can get quite a few titles there. Look, let me maybe just pick one author. Again, she, I've probably at least two or three of her books I've reviewed on my site because they're all very good. American conservative writer Jennifer uh, Roback Morse is still cranking out some very good books indeed. Uh, one of her more recent ones, I think from about two years ago, is called The Sexual State, uh, with the subtitle, How Elite Ideologies Are Destroying Lives and Why the Church Was Right All Along. So she's obviously uh, not just a conservative, but a religious conservative and uh, she looks in some detail, again, same thing, how the sexual revolution has really been part of a much bigger plan. It never was just some, you know, ordinary grassroots movement. It really has been led along by various elites. Uh, obviously, the ideologues in our universities, you know, the folks that we've already talked about, those in the Frankfurt School, the Fabian Socialists, and so on. And all those that followed them in our schools, in our uh, courts, in our uh, media, they've been pushing along so much of this, whether the, the uh, sexual revolution, the feminist revolution, the homosexual revolution. And uh, a good part of the reason it's being pushed so much is, uh, uh, especially when you tie it in with the coercive power of the state, uh, you're really almost limitless 
in terms of what you can achieve. For example, when the whole battle over marriage was taking place, you know, should we radically redefine marriage to include same-sex couples? Well, look, a lot of us were warning for years. I mean, I've written three books on the topic. I've been writing on this for three decades now. We warned that this was not just about some, you know, minor amendment to the Marriage Act that would not have any impact on everybody else. We warned everybody would be impacted. Everybody would be affected by this. Because once you create a legal right to something, well, you also have to have mandatory responsibilities as well. If you say there is a right to homosexual marriage, well, guess what? Others have to ensure that that happens. So that means the state has to step in and force marriage celebrants to conduct homosexual marriages, whether they want to or not. The state will come in and force, right, florists or cake makers, you name it, photographers to be involved in homosexual weddings, even though they may not want to. So we've seen hundreds of cases of this, both here and overseas, you know, as soon as we did go down the path of legalizing homosexual marriage, everything did change. And then the heavy arm of the law came along and started enforcing, you know, not just uh, this vague notion of homosexual rights, but the necessity of everybody else to recognize, approve, endorse, celebrate and promote these rights, right? If you, you don't become an avid supporter of it, there's something wrong with you. You're not mm. part of where society is at. So we all know how that's working out, whether it's the Israel Falaus or uh, there's a case I wrote up recently of a doctor here in Melbourne who's lost his job. Uh, you know, why? What horrible thing did he do? Did he you know, sexually assault one of his patients? Did he run off with all the money? Did he cook the books? No, evidently, according to the state, he did something much, much worse. He actually expressed his own political opinions on his own private, you know, social media pages about things like abortion, things like marriage, the transgender issue, for simply sharing his own point of view and that included a number of comments on my own website, Culture Watch, for daring to do that about eight or nine months ago, the Medical Board of Australia suspended his license. He has not been practicing medicine as a GP for nine months. He's a young guy. He's got a wife. He's got kids. He's got a family to feed. But now with the new coercive utopians in power, again, all wrapped around this sexual ideology, He's got to figure out how he's going to feed his family, all because of the crime of thinking unwanted, unpopular, un-PC thoughts. See, that, he, uh, that is that is absolutely <laughs> crazy. It's, it's alarming. And, and, and I don't know that people understand this enough. I mean, uh, like you, I voted no in that, in that uh, plebiscite that we had. You know, could, could I have uh, could I have possibly ever voted Yes. I don't know the answer to that, Bill, but if someone said to me that the only thing that I was uh, voting yes to and the only thing that would actually occur after that vote 
would be simply allowing the piece of paper that the government gives to heterosexual couples that enter into a permanent or well, <laughs> a permanent union until they decide to divorce was yep. was that it was going to be extended to same sex couples. Well, yep. maybe maybe I could have brought myself to vote yes, but I knew intrinsically that this was not where it would stop. And we have seen that. It has been worn out by the things that you are saying. And look, it's easy to understand why that it has gone down that track um, because the activists that pushed same-sex marriage, they pushed it under the guise of marriage equality, which sounded all hip and cool and sounded like, uh, you know, everyone was against equality. But but actually, if you frame it in that mind, then people who actually have different points of view based on their faith, based on their belief, based on whatever. People have different points of view. Well, you are basically put into the same category as a racist because, mm. you know, we want equality of the races and if you're against that, you're a racist. If you want yep. equality of sexualities and you're against that, well, you're lumped in the same category. And that yep. that is just wrong. Uh, and I'm very worried to hear this story, and I have heard it before, about this doctor who was essentially deprofessioned because he just did not think the right way. There was no clinical issue. There was no issue about his bedside manner or about his uh, treatment on patients or anything like that. It was simply because he did not subscribe to views that are considered politically correct. And uh, it's going to be alarming for so many people. When is that going to stop? Where, where do you think that's going to stop? Yeah, well, it's not stopping, certainly until we start waking up. And by the way, he is not alone in this. I can give you another 10 names right now of people in the exact same place, whether doctors or psychiatrists or what have you. Many of them Christians, obviously all of them pro-family, pro-marriage, pro-life. There's at least 10 more cases. Many of them are still, you know, Mm. still private hush-hush because, you know, still ongoing cases. But this is, you know, we had one guy only, you think, oh, well, you know, that's that's a fluke. But we've got many cases of the exact same thing. And that's just, we're talking about the medical profession in my second book on homosexuality that came out, what, I don't know, Six, seven years ago now, I listed, uh, I don't know, 100 cases from here and overseas of the same sort of thing, uh, fully documented. Uh, people who lost their jobs, people were heavily fined, and even some people who were put in jail for the same thing, for not going along with the PC yes, narrative, crazy. for daring to say, you know, I think marriage is between a man and a woman. I think children deserve to have their own mother and father for simply saying that maybe in just a facebook post they're lost their jobs we've gotten so close to so, uh, george orwell's know, 1984 it's well, not funny it's so we've outlined the problems right we've outlined yep. uh some of the resources to to educate people and they could go to your blog and have a look at some of those yeah. books, uh, along with the ones that you've recommended today, the uh, the sexual state, the new politics of sex, and taken into custody, and also Professor Augusto Zimmerman's treatise on Western legal theory. Um, but once people, I guess, educate themselves a little bit more on what's going on, 
and want to be part of the battle, what do they what do they do? Like what's yeah. what's there to do? Tell us how do we respond to all of this? Yep. And we have to respond, of course, otherwise, you know, this is a wasted exercise. Uh, well, look, as I said in my last uh, time with you last week, uh, you know, these problems will not be solved overnight. We have to actually think and act like the other side does. And guess what they do? They have the long term in view. They have the big picture. It's not just one little battle here or one little issue there or one little uh, maybe vote in Parliament. If we can just win this vote, we're fine. If we can get enough signatures on a petition, uh, we have to be prepared to be in the long haul. It's like I say, it may be it may be my children's generation or my grandchildren's that will see a, a radical turnaround. I know that uh, if you're impatient and you want to see change now, that's not very satisfying. But sorry, that's how it is. I think we said last time that, you know, it takes centuries to build a culture. Uh, you can destroy it overnight. So um, we're not going to get these things turned around overnight. And, uh, you know, sometimes a person's uh, theology can uh, unfortunately uh, mar the way they look at things. You know, some, some Christians at least tend to think, well, as things get worse and worse, well, goody, that means the return of Jesus is soon. And therefore, you know, all this is going to just come to an end. So I'm not going to do anything about it. I kind of like it when I see all these horrible things happening. I don't think that's actually the way we should be responding. If you're a Christian, Jesus did mention that we should occupy till he comes. That is keep busy with the work of the kingdom until he comes. And so if you then start saying, well, give me some specifics, well, I mean, as I said last time, there's really, in, in that sense, the sky's the limit. Uh, as many different people there are who are concerned about these things, well, there would be that many different things we can do. Uh, given that we mentioned that the arts, the entertainment industry, media, Hollywood, uh, law, Everything, you know, all the institutions have been taken over. Well, maybe some people with gifts and callings in those areas, maybe we need to start the fight back there. We know of plenty of radicals who are making movies for Hollywood. We know of radicals who are making TV series. I just mentioned this new uh, uh, series on Phyllis Schlafly that looks to be a real hatchet job. Yeah. You know, so the other side knows exactly. Let's make a TV series. We'll get all kinds of people watching especially those who may not know all the details about a person like her. By the time they're done watching this TV series, they're going to think, boy, was she a horrible, evil, you know, religious right bigot. What a horrible person Schlafly was. So guess what? If you're good at filmmaking or whatever media, doing videos, hey, we could use some conservative and Christians in Hollywood. We could. Can, we I, could can use, I make a quick, you know, quick comment, though, that those yep. – People behind that documentary, that they're, they're cowards because that woman died in recent times. So they've waited well, until sure. waited until her death no, to do right. something like that. No. So they don't get absolutely. Um, so, right. uh, but but anyway, go on. What else can we do? Uh, well, you're quite right. And in fact, her children are quite ticked off. They were not asked by the makers of this TV series. You know, they, they didn't get any input. It was all the enemies of her that got of a course. free run. 
So, yeah, we need uh, conservatives. We need Christians. Maybe, you know, if YouTube is going down the tube, uh, literally, if Facebook is so bad, if Twitter and Pinterest have all been captured by the left, well, you know, if you're good at techie stuff, you're good at computer stuff, good at social media, we could use, you know, conservative alternatives to Facebook. Some people like me would a blog site if you're a good writer. Well, do that. Some people like you, you need to run for office, become a parliamentarian. Uh, even smaller things, you can get on talkback radio. You can write letters to the editor. You can, well, you can do the petitions. Uh, you know, there's really no end of what we can do. Simply sharing the word, having a great uh, web uh, site like your own where people can listen, you know, think, oh, that, those two guys made some sense. Well, what, what do you do next? Press the share button. I assume there's some kind of uh, share function on your site. So we need to get the word out. You need to share far and wide the interviews you're doing. We, we need to share truth. We need to get the word out. So whatever means it takes. I tell my audiences, especially some of the older folks, you're probably not on Facebook, but guess what? You need to get on. It's a great platform, even as bigoted and biased as it is. And yes, I've spent many a month in Facebook jail, <laughs> but get on it, you know, and use it to share truth. You can get, you know, even if you just share a, a video or an article I've written, you never know how far and wide that'll get spread around the internet, uh, you know, some guy sitting in his home in uh, Kansas might read it and think, oh, I never heard that before. I never thought of that before. Mm. So look, there's just actually a lot that we can do. And a lot of it is just based on what you're already good at. I often tell people that, well, I heard I wasn't always a Christian. <laughs> I certainly wasn't always a conservative. Uh, back in my wild youth and my hippie days, I used to edit an underground newspaper, right? So back then, as a pagan, I had, uh, you know, uh, I had gifts, which now I would say God gave me. I was a good writer. I was good at journalism. So I was editing and writing underground newspapers for the revolution. I became a conservative and a Christian at the age of 18, guess what? I'm still writing a lot. I'm still doing a lot of stuff. So, you know, I've taken the same gifts, if you will, the same talents, but now hopefully harm, harnessing those for good and not for evil. So all of your listeners probably have all kinds of abilities and gifts that we can use to help stand for faith, family, and freedom. Well, that's a great note to end on, except I want to ask you one last question that I ask all of my guests. If you were Prime Minister for the day, Bill Muhlenberg, what is the one thing, one thing, there's only one thing, you know, I don't want to list uh, 20, I'm sure that you could think of 20 things or more. What is the one thing well, that you I would could, I could. Oh, look, I mean, there's so many. I mean, you know, what, what have we already mentioned? The Family Law Act. Be a good one to take on. Uh, well, look, Section 18C, you know, just the erosion of our freedoms. Now you've gone two things. So which which, which I got which, two already. Oh, you're, just one. You're telling me to prioritize here because, it, oh, well, because it look, becomes I mean, the you know, most important thing that you think, and yeah. I'm interested to well, hear that. Yes, 
I could be cheeky and I could say my first act would be to abolish or all government, but I'm not really a, an anarchist. I do think there is a place, but, uh, you know, uh, oh, look, um, well, you have to talk about what is the pressing issue of the day. Right now it's Corona, of course. And as I have been saying so often now, one I've had two things that scare me, well, three things that scare me, and this will tie into the one thing I'd recommend. A, of course, the, the virus itself, is, it's a real worry, it's a real concern. But the other two things, one, I've been kind of shocked at how very quickly and very easily it's been for governments around the world to effectively shut down an entire nation, bring it to a standstill. And then the third that goes with it is how overwhelmingly it seems most of the masses of the people have just been happy to go along with this, haven't uttered a word of concern about, wait a minute, has this ever killed? Has this been too much? So the whole concept of power in government, how you would uh, put a rein on government, I mean, the checks and balances we have, obviously, in both America and the Republican form of government and here. You know, that was meant to keep government in check. It was meant to keep inordinate amounts of power from uh, uh, occurring. So if I could come up with some kind of policy that would ensure that, you know, we do not have carried away governments who can so easily turn into a vessel for the interests of the well-being of the people into what could easily become a tyranny, uh, I'm not sure how what form that would take, but that would be at the top of my list of priorities, I think. Well, that keeps in line with the show because we talk about defending freedom. I think that uh, you're right on that. I know that there is a very, very good reason why we have uh, got the measures that we have got, but uh, you are still right, without a doubt, it's been a, an infringement on people's liberties and uh, it has been easily accepted. And my view is that... Uh, once this pandemic's out of the way, everything, everything needs to be scrubbed from the books. And I'd be interested to see even what executive powers that uh, that are left that actually get taken away from the executive and handed over to the legislature. So at least that you have a vote by the representatives of the people when something like that is to happen again. But um, that's probably a topic for another day. And I yeah. thank you very much for joining us for this episode and the last one where we talked about cultural Marxism and in this episode, the war on the family. Thanks very much, Bill Muhlenberg. Thank you indeed, George. We will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. You've been listening to the Conservative One Podcast with George Christensen.